Parshat Kedoshim. And this week, the shir is dedicated by Ed and Cecile Gromis, in memory of Ed's father, Irving Gromis, Yisrael Tzvi Halevi ben Ephraim, Zichronol Levracha, his Neshama Shedhaven Aliyah, and we shall be Zechot Sitchias Hamesim. We'll begin with a Posuk in Vayikra. You've read the Posuk before. It's the Posuk before the one that says, Okay? You, have to, you need to love your neighbor like you love yourself. But this is the Posuk before. So, first, you need to be instructed not to hate your neighbor. Interesting. Human nature is always at the forefront of anything that's written in the Torah. The, more, the default position of human beings is they don't like each other, not that they like each other, right? Says the Pasuk, it's, it's chapter Yudtes, 19, Pasuk Yudzayin, 17, in Leviticus, Sisna esachicha bilvavecha, do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your fellow. And do not bear sin on his account. Now, I understand that all these three things are in one posuk, and there's a fourth anomaly as well. They don't fit together. That means don't hate your brother in your heart, or don't hate your kinsman in your heart, doesn't seem to be related to rebuke. Hatred and rebuke don't necessarily fit alongside each other. Okay? Uh, and the third part of the Pasuk, do not bear sin on his account, also doesn't really make sense. First of all, who are we talking about? It's a little bit, bit ambiguous. It's one of these Torah statements that's ambiguous. Whose sin? Your sin? His sin? It's, it's not very clear. And of course, you don't need to say, you could quite easily get away with saying, Rebuke your fellow. So I'm not going to go into the actual uses of the word achichan, amisecha, etc. Because that's another aspect of this, perhaps for another time. But I will be talking today using the Talmud and using commentaries about these three aspects of one verse and how they relate to each other if they do, why they're put together in one verse. Again, three things. Don't hate your brother in your heart, rebuke your fellow, and don't bear sin on his account. Those are the three things in the Posuk. Let's try and see how we can relate these things to each other. The first thing we're going to look at is, and this is the primary source regarding this Pasuk, is a Gemara in Erechin, and it's, uh, it's 16b. So we're going to begin with a Baraita. We're going to begin with a source that is brought by the Gemara. It's an alternative source. It's not a Mishnah, but it says as follows, The sages taught in a Baraita. It says in the Pasuk, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. So the question is, why does the verse specify in your heart? Could just say, Don't hate your brother. What does Bilvavecha Add to this instruction, to this directive. Says the Gemara, quoting a Brisa, one might have thought that this directive means don't beat him, don't slap him, don't destroy him. So what, how is hatred manifested? By, by physical violence. If you hate someone, you're physically violent towards them. And the Torah generally, in general terms, if you look at any mitzvah in the Torah, it's always about something that you should do or you shouldn't do. It's very rarely about things which are going on in your mind. Or as the, uh, as the pasuk would refer to it, bilvavecha doesn't actually mean in your heart. Your heart is beating and it's providing oxygen to your body via the blood it pumps. When we use the word bilvavecha in the Torah, what we're talking about is emotionally, um, in, your, in your mind, don't allow yourself to be drawn into hatred. Okay, and by the way, we have, a, um, we have another instruction with the word levovcha, right? You must love God with all your heart. But generally speaking, when there is an instruction in the Torah, that instruction usually refers to an action. There's no action involved here. 
So if the Pasuk would have said, don't hate your brother, how would you, how would you expect um, that hatred would be manifested? By some type of physical um, manifestation, right? So, I mean, the, the way the Gemara expresses it, you're going to beat them, you're going to hit them, you're going to cause them harm. Somehow you're going to cause them harm as a result of your hatred. The word bilvavecha um, connotes something completely different. It means you're not allowed to hate them even in your mind. Look what the Gemara says. One might have thought this directive means don't beat him, don't slap him, or don't destroy him. And that's why it says, Bilvavecha. The verse means hatred in the heart. Sinna shebelev hakosuv medaber. That means the instruction in the Torah not to hate is not a hatred which has some type of physical manifestation. It's a hatred in the mind. You're actually not allowed to have hateful thoughts towards another person. Asks the Gemara the following question. Goes on to the next part of the Posuk. How do we know where is the source for the information? That if someone sees someone else doing something unseemly, that he is obligated to rebuke him. How do we know that? So it answers the Gemara because it says, you shall rebuke your fellow. Usually when in English, when we translate a double use of the same word in Hebrew, means you shall surely rebuke. It's not quite right, but it's the best English way of expressing it. In other words, it enforces this concept. Asks the Gemara, and if one rebuked him for his action, but he did not accept the rebuke, from where do we know he must rebuke him again. How do we know that you need to double up on rebuke? By the way, rebuke, as we're going to see, doesn't mean telling them off. What it means is that you identify the thing that they've done wrong so that they can know they've done something wrong in order to improve their actions, to change from their ways. Okay, So rebuke is not, is not walking up to somebody and telling them, you are a nothing, you're a nobody because you did this action. What it means is that you, if you see someone doing something wrong, by the way, if you, if, you know, in general life terms, if you would see somebody um, doing something wrong in terms of the way they conduct themselves, okay, the, they, they, you, they put the fork in the wrong hand. Maybe you, if you saw a kid putting the fork or doesn't know how to use a knife and fork, you'd direct them how to use it. That's what the Gemara means or the Posuk means by the word hoicheach. Doesn't mean that you're telling them off. It simply means you're identifying the thing that's been done wrong in order so that they should do it right. So how do we know that if he was rebuked once and he didn't listen, that you have to tell him the same thing again? Answers the Gemara because it says because it uses this double um, double language, this double phrase. Um, because it repeats it, that means that you must repeat it. And, says the Gemara, I might have thought that one needs to continue rebuking even in the face of the person one is rebuking, even if the face of the person who one is rebuking changes. That means, what happens if when you tell something that someone that they've done something wrong, it is embarrassing for them? People get embarrassed. Like, if you, say, if you tell somebody, I don't know, you meet a guy, and you say to the guy, you know, your flies are open. Okay? It happens, right? It depends how you tell them. If you whisper it in their ear, they might be embarrassed. If you say it loud in front of everybody and everybody laughs, that's going to be embarrassing. Right? So there's a way of telling somebody something. Everybody, nobody wants to walk around with their flies open. Nobody wants to walk around with, a, you know, a piece of uh, toilet paper sticking out of their uh, uh, pants. Right? So you want to tell them, but you don't want to tell them in such a way that's going to embarrass them. Similarly, if somebody's doing an Avera, okay, somebody's doing something wrong, they're not keeping Shabbos properly, and they don't know, maybe they do know, you don't know if they know. And you'd want to tell them, you know, you're not really allowed to do that on Shabbos. That's not the way you're meant to behave on Shabbos, because if you do that, you're desecrating Shabbos law. Right? To what extent do you need to inform them of their misdeed, whatever that misdeed may be, Answers the Gemara that only applies. I'm going to look at the 
language, we look at the Hebrew here, that Yochoil afilu mishtanim ponov. How do you know that you're allowed to tell them even if, uh, that you're not allowed to do it if their face changes? Talmud So now we get at least the Talmud's understanding of this pasuk. Do not bear sin because of them, because of the person you're rebuking. In other words, the one who gives rebuke shouldn't commit a sin by embarrassing the person he's rebuking. What is the point of offering somebody advice about something that they're doing and at the same time you're embarrassing them? You're malbin ponov. You, uh, you cause somebody to blush, you cause somebody to go white, you cause somebody's face to fall. If you embarrass them publicly, then you know the Hebrew expression is Yotza schara behefseida. Any gain that might be had is lost because you've now got an Avera. Says the Torah, what is the extent of Hoycheach Techiach? That means don't allow yourself to sin in order to tell that person how they should be doing something properly. So if by telling them you're going to embarrass them, that's a sin for you and you shouldn't be telling them. So that's your limitation, says the Gemara. Now we're going to look at um, various opinions regarding the extent or the dynamics of rebuke as I have described it. Tanya, another Braisa. Omar Rabbi Tarfan. Rabbi Tarfan says, I would be surprised if there is anyone in this generation who can receive rebuke. So why, why would he say that? He continues as follows. I'm going to read the Hebrew, Aramaic. Im Omar loy, tul mi If somebody would approach someone else and say, take out the little splint that's between your teeth. You know, sometimes you see someone has a little, something in their teeth and you just walk up to them and you say, that, you know, there's something in your teeth, maybe you need to take it out, get a toothpick, etc. What will happen, so this is just, by the way, a metaphor. This is not what it means. If you go up to somebody and say to them quietly, you know, you did something slightly wrong, perhaps you shouldn't be doing it, says Rabbi Tarfin, you know what the reaction is going to be? Omar loy, tul koire mi Take the wooden beam out from between your eyes. In other words, the reaction is going to be very hostile. Instead of him saying, thank you for telling me, the person is going to say, what are you telling me about that little thing I did wrong? You've done a hundred things much worse than me. So don't tell me how to behave. You're a hundred times worse than me. Says Rabbi Tarfon, I don't believe there's anyone in our generation who is able to handle rebuke of the nature that we've described. Omar Rabbi Loza ben Azariah. Tomani im yesh bedur He says, I'm going to take it even further than that. He says, in fact, I don't even know if there's anyone in our generation who knows how to rebuke properly. Don't imagine that you can be God's policeman because what entitles you to tell someone else how to behave? We're going to talk more about this later on in the shir. But you see here that both Rabbi Tarfain and Rabbi Loza ben Azariah struggled with this idea of rebuke. They're not disagreeing with the context of the posuk, which, as we said, was split into three. The first is you're not allowed to hate your brother. We haven't really connected that yet with hechiach but then you must rebuke your fellow um, if they do something wrong, but you mustn't do it to the extent that you're going to embarrass them. So Rabbi Tarfin says, I'm not even sure you'll ever be able to tell someone what to do because you're always going to cause a hostile reaction. So the loisissa, love, hate, is always going, always going to come into play. Says Rabbi Lozab Nazari, what are you talking about? There's no one who can even be a hecheach techeach. So the, the posuk may exist in the Torah, but the extent to which it could ever be executed is limited, at least in the, in the words of the Tanoim. Now we get an, um, the other side of the coin. The Omar Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri. Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri was a, an, uh, um, a fellow student of Rabbi Akiva. And he says, I call on the heaven and earth as my witnesses that Rabbi Akiva was punished many times because of me as I would go and complain about him to Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel. I would go to the Rebbe and I'd say to Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, I don't think Rabbi Akiva is behaving correctly. And Rabbi Shimon Gamliel obviously would go to Rabbi Akiva and he would say to him, 
I don't think you're behaving correctly. I've heard you've done this and this and this and whatever it is. So Rabbi Yochanan Nuri is um, basically presenting us with a practical example of rebuke. He arranged for Rabbi Akiva to be rebuked and possibly even punished. The word used in the Gemara is loka. I don't think it's literal. But he suffered as a result of the rebuke that he received from, from Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel. But he continues, and this is what's so incredible. But as it turns out, by doing this, I increased Rabbi Akiva's affection for me. Affirming what it is written, there's a posuk in Mishli which describes this situation. Al toichach leitz pen yis no echa. Do not rebuke a scorner, a joker, lest he ends up hating you. Hoichach lechocham veyehovecha. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. In other words, a wise man wants to improve himself and loves those who assist him in that task. So you're here presented with the other side of the equation. Don't rebuke someone if you're going to embarrass them. Make sure that you're an appropriate person to rebuke. Rabbi Loza ben Azari is somewhat doubtful that any of us can rebuke anyone. However, if you are rebuked, and the person who's rebuking you does it properly, don't end up hating the person who rebuked you. They've helped you. So if you are a wise person, you welcome the advice, the guidance, because you want to do things correctly. So the Gemara is really unpacking this posuk, although we haven't yet got the connection between loisisna esachicha bilvavecha and the hecheach techeach. Okay? Sure. So that's the way. So that's that, but that I explained that earlier. That's the way rebuke should be phrased. It should never be phrased as you're doing something wrong. But it's not what you're doing doesn't make you look great. So if you have a splint in your teeth, you you, you know you don't look. You would think that somebody would get. So Rabbi Tarfan says, if you point out the smallest error in another person, the pomposity, the arrogance of today's generation, he's saying in the time of the Talmud, can you imagine? In the time of the Talmud, is such that they're going to overreact and say, would you dare tell me about the splint in my teeth? You've got a beam coming out between your eyes. So, perhaps. Perhaps, but we're going to see that this is going to translate itself into halacha. Well, the other thing, though, is that, and the other one was talking about um, Rabbi Akiva. Notice that Rabbi Nuri did not... Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri. Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri did not... Rebuke him himself. So he told... He told him, but that's so interesting. But he still... But why did he do that? Because he didn't feel that Rabbi Akiva would take him seriously. But he wanted to make sure that Rabbi Akiva behaved correctly. So he went to the Rebbe and he said... Obviously, Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri did it from the purest of motivations. But usually, if somebody's a snitch, which essentially what Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri is admitting to himself, it, to us, that he, is, he was a snitch. He, you know, either he didn't have the courage or he didn't have the confidence to confront Rabbi Akiva with his behavior. And he, did, he instead informed Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, and Rabbi Shimon Gamliel took it up with Rabbi Akiva, and clearly, there were consequences. We don't really know from the context of the Gemara what those consequences were. Yes. But this was one on one. Rabbi Shema Gamliel would have gone up to Rabbi Akiva one on one and informed him of the things that he had done wrong. But obviously, all, sometimes you see somebody doing something wrong, sometimes you hear about it. You know, I'm a rabbi. I often get approached by people who tell me, you know, have you heard? You know, that's usually how the sentence begins. Have you heard about this one or that one? Sometimes I have. Very often I haven't. Right? So what do I do in a situation where I've, I hear something about someone which is potentially damaging to their reputation? How do I approach it? What is my, you know, what is my go-to solution in that situation? I could say, listen, I didn't see it. It's got nothing to do with me. Or, or, am, I, or am I a person who is feels responsible, I don't want a person to make a fool of themselves, or I don't want them to upset others, 
I can go up to that person and say, listen, I didn't see you do it, but I heard such and such and such, and it needs a solution, right? So that's really what Rabbi Yochan Ben-Nuri is telling us. But it, but but okay. But I don't I don't know how the information. I understand your question. How did Rabbi Akiva know it was him? I think it's not an example of a chiyach It's an example of how an intelligent, um, self-conscious, self-confident person reacts in the face of rebuke. It doesn't really. Ma- it's not. So criticism already is a strong word. It's not criticism. It's not even rebuke, as I said earlier. It's simply um, redirection. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not rebuke. We all need it. We all need to know if we're doing the right thing. And you're going to see later on, the last piece, if we get to it, is about you know, an angry person or somebody who is so insecure that actually telling them something is going to cause them you know, such anguish that people just end up not telling them. You know, you tiptoe around certain people because of their potential reaction, but actually all that happens as a result of that is that they descend even further into their stupidity and their bad character because nobody ever tells them. You know, many years ago I had this discussion with somebody. You know, he, he was very upset because he felt he wasn't being appreciated for something that, um, that he felt he had done. I don't think he had, but whatever. He felt that he had done something and nobody had said thank you. So I said to him, you know, it's interesting. You insist on people saying thank you, and people do because you insist on it. But then you never know if anybody is ever thankful. Because you insist on being thanked, when somebody says thank you to you, you don't actually know if they're saying thank you to you because they're grateful, or they're saying thank you to you because you've insisted that they say thank you. Wouldn't it be better if you could just erase that demand, don't demand a thank you, then if somebody says thank you, you will know that they are thankful. It, it, so it's, it, it, the same approach applies here. If somebody is so, um, is so negative towards anybody who ever criticizes them or ever says anything that could be even interpreted as criticism, then they're never actually going to be able to improve themselves because improvement in society, we don't live alone. By the way, that whole parsha it's so interesting. I said it at the Shiva this week. What's the parsha this week called? Kadoshim. What is the concept of Kodosh? Separate, right? Separate. In order to be sanctified, you have to be separate. It's one of the very rare instances in the Torah where it says, God said to Moses, Tell the Jewish nation, Daber el kol adas b'nei Yisrael Kadoshim to you. Don't just speak to them, speak to the entire congregation. What is the implication? You're not holy if you're apart. If you're separate. So it's counterintuitive. Your holiness as a holy person can only be if you are a part of the community. The moment you separate yourself from other people, from society, you're, at, you're not holy. So in ancient culture, it was the opposite. How did you express holiness and sanctity and spirituality? If you became an ascetic, you lived at the top of a mountain and you never spoke to anybody, a vow of silence. Even today in the Catholic Church, you're not allowed to get married, you have to live in a monastery, you have to lead your own life. It's, it's, a, it's a life of personal spirituality. In Judaism, it's the exact opposite. We don't have this concept. The concept of Kedushah is by being among Kol Adas Bnei Israel. In fact, we have a prayer called Kedushah. It's called, it's called holiness. Can you say it if you're on your own? No, you can only say it when you're together with a minyan. You need a congregation in order to say Kedushah. Um, you know, in the morning we have the prayer um, where it says, where the, all the angels got together. Kulam ahuvim, kulam barurim, kulam giborim, kulam be'emar of Yiraratzoinkoinam. Everything is about the angels saying it together. When they're all together, oinim va'oimrim be'yira, kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. You cannot be, um, you cannot be the perfect person that you need to be if you're on your own.
It's only as part of a society. And why is that? Because societal norms demand a certain level of behavior. You can't, you know, if you are, you know, if you're on your own at home, you can walk around in your pajamas. You can't walk around in your pajamas if you're walking down uh, um, Wilshire Boulevard. Why not? Because nobody else is walking around in pajamas. People demand that you get dressed in proper clothing in order to wear the, it's not dignified to walk around in your pajamas, right? So if you if you want to exist at a certain level, you need to you can only do so in society. Now, how does that work? Well, you know, if you walk um, down Wilshire Boulevard in pajamas, people are going to look at you strangely. Consider that right? So the fact that people look at you in a particular way is going to is going to encourage you before you leave home to change into clothes that are not going to lead to a person looking at you strangely. Okay, so that is the concept of echiach techiach. Now we're going. That is, by the way, is the basic idea. Now we're going to explore it in all its different permutations. First, let's look at the Gemara on page two. It's a Gemara in Psochim. Um, are you ever allowed to hate another person? So the first part of the Posig, and this is the part which we haven't really addressed properly yet, says, es Do not hate your brother. Brother, by the way, is just a code word in the Torah for your kinsman, for, for you know, the, the, the other people in your society. You're not allowed to hate them in your heart. Rabbi Shmuel bar Yitzchak. So Rabbi Shmuel bar Yitzchak said in the name of Rav, although someone who sees someone else sinning, should not testify against him on his own. And this is in the context of the Gemara a little earlier, which says that if somebody gives testimony against somebody else on their own, they've cast aspersions onto his character, but they have not actually achieved a result. Why is that? Because we don't believe one witness. You need two witnesses to testify. So if I come along and say, that somebody is a, um, a Shabbos desecrator or a murderer or whatever it is I say about them. It, it, and I go before a Beisdin and I send this, the Gemara tells a story about someone who did it. I go before a Beisdin and I say, this person was Mechalel Shabbos. Is it of any use to anyone? No, it's simply casting aspersions on that per person's Shabbos observance. But it doesn't do anything to change it. He's not going to, you know, there's no legal halachic repercussions. So, the Gemara continues by saying this, so even in the name of Rav, even though someone sees someone else sinning, shouldn't go into a Beisdin and testify, nevertheless, he's permitted to hate him. Okay? Mutter l'sanei soi. You're allowed to hate him. At why is that? Shenemar. Kitira chamor son echo. If you see the donkey of your enemy, it's a posuk um, in, in Shmois. If you see there's a person who's your enemy, okay, and you see his donkey and it's collapsing under the weight of its load, literally cannot stand, what should you do? Says the Gemara, how is it possible that you have a soinecho? How is it possible you have a soine? Why would the Posik use this as the example for the halacha? By the way, the context of the Posik makes perfect sense. If you see your friend's donkey struggling, what are you going to do? You're immediately going to help your friend by helping the donkey or taking some of the load off so that the donkey can, can regain its balance. But if you see someone you hate, or someone who hates you, yeah, okay, sign echo. It could be translated either way. But either way, we need to understand how the Torah would even mention a hater in, in a Jew, right? What, how, how could we even have that? So says, says the Gemara, what is the meaning of someone who hates you? My soine, says the Gemara, perhaps it refers to a non-Jew, because we know that in, in the ancient times, there were, the non-Jews, the pagans, hated the Jews who were monotheists, and there was tremendous enmity between the two. So perhaps this posuk isn't talking about a Jewish-owned donkey. Maybe it's talking about a Gentile-owned donkey. And if you see a Gentile-owned donkey which is struggling under its weight, perhaps uh, you, need to, you need to help that donkey. Okay, that's, that's the suggestion of the Gemara. Says the Gemara, that doesn't make sense because wasn't it taught in a Baraisa that the word soine 
is always soine is a Yisrael, and it's not a soine who's a goy. So the word soine in the Torah, this is what the Brisa says, doesn't mean a Gentile, it means a Jew. So now we're back to square one, that the word soine in the Posuk means a Jew. How is that possible? Because we've seen the other, it seems a contradiction to the Posuk in our Parsha, which it says, Answers the Gemara, Absolutely, it's obviously talking about a Jew. How is that possible? Surely one's not permitted to hate a fellow Jew. Isn't it written, and it quotes the Pasuk in our parsha, Ela says the Gemara. However, perhaps you will say that this verse refers to a situation where there are witnesses that he sinned, that there are witnesses that a person sinned, and you're permitted to hate a sinner, even if they're Jewish. However, says the Gemara, in that case, everyone else could also hate him. So it wouldn't be Sain Echa, it would be a sinner. The word Sain Echa um, implies a personal enmity between the two people, the owner of the donkey and the person who sees the donkey struggling. So it can't mean somebody who everybody knows is a sinner. Therefore, what is different about this situation? It is talking about if he personally saw the person doing something immoral, you are permitted to hate that person. So the Gemara in Psochim is saying that even though you're not allowed to hate, now we begin to understand what the word means. Why it uses this? It doesn't say es it doesn't say es Israel. It says, if somebody is your brother in terms of the way he conducts or she conducts their life, then you're not permitted to hate them. But however, if somebody is a sinner, you are permitted to hate them. So it's not actually a contradiction. The Gemara is not a contradiction. Uh, uh, the Gemara in Erechin is not a contradiction to the Gemara in Psochim. However, we still have the, the opinion of Rabbi Tarfan and Rabbi Loza ben Azariah. What did they say? So they said, you're not allowed to chastise, you're not allowed to rebuke someone. We don't have anyone in our generation who can rebuke or who can accept rebuke. Now we must connect these two. The hatred and the rebuke has to be connected. How do we connect these two? They are in the same posuk. The implication is that you might hate someone for being a sinner. How can you avoid hating someone for being a sinner? If you tell them that they're sinning, you don't want to end up having to be a soine of that person. Therefore, until the level where you're going to cause them tremendous embarrassment, in which case you're sinning. So now all three elements of the posuk match up. Don't, um, you must hate the sinner, but don't hate your brother. Well, he's not my brother because he's a sinner. If you rebuke them, then they might change their ways. But don't go overboard because that might cause you more problems. The damage will be done to you and not uh, a, a resolution to the situation. Let's look now uh, um, on that basis. We're going to look at the Rashbam and Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shor. Um, who now makes sense of this posuk. I've used both because they're both quite similar. So the Rashbam has an interesting take on this. Why use the word bilvavecha in your heart? So remember the Gemara has a practical application. We're not talking about hit, um, hatred which has a physical manifestation of hitting or causing somebody harm. He says something else, bilvavecha is very private. The word, when you say something is um, in your lave, in your heart, that means it's not publicly expressed. So if somebody does something bad to you, don't appear to him as if you love him, as if you're his friend. Don't be false. When you meet your friend, you say, Hi, how are you? So lovely to see you. But where inside you're thinking to yourself, I hate that man, he's disgusting. I wish I didn't have to speak to him. But public, hey, how are you doing? So lovely to see you. That's bilvavecha. That means you're a false person. On the outside, you pretend to be nice. And on the inside, you're full of hatred. Loitoiv hadova. 
Al tisneyu bilibcha. Don't hate him in your heart. You know what? If somebody did you harm, arrange to meet them. Go out with them for a cup of coffee or for lunch and say to them, you know what? I'm a little upset in the way you've been treating me. So he reinterprets the end of the Pasuk to mean that if you hate and you haven't been if you're full of hatred for the person but publicly you're very nice to them and you don't resolve the situation then you are guilty of hatred. The Loisisa at the end of the Pasuk goes back to the Loisisna Esachicha um, that you shouldn't hate. So you always have to do everything in your power to resolve, reach a resolution with those who you believe have done you harm. Let's look at Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Yosef Bechar Shar. So the is the, According to this version of the Marashbam, the hate is hating without trying to resolve. That means that you, he doesn't even know, by the way. He may not even know that you hate him. Because every time you meet him or her, whatever, you say, hey, how are you doing? It's so lovely to see you. And you go out with them, you socialize with them. You have, the, you, know, you have the best relationship, at least publicly. And in your heart, you're full of hatred. So the Torah is telling you, because then you'll be a sinner. Find a way of resolving the situation. And it's very personal. In this understanding of the Pasuk, it's very personal. It's very um, subjective. It's not a general approach. It's not, by the way, when I see somebody not keeping Shabbos, I should tell them to keep Shabbos. That's not what the Pasuk means. According to the Rashbam, he's saying, it's really subjective to you. When you hate someone, find a way of resolving the situation. Otherwise, you'll be carrying that sin with you. Okay? But you don't have an obligation to tell some Jew how to behave. And fits in very nicely with the Gemara in, uh, um, in Erechin, where we don't know how to give rebuke and we don't know how to take rebuke. This is very personal. This is simply, uh, you know, resolving a personal dispute or situation that may exist in your, in your life. Continues Rabbi Yosef Bechor Slightly different. It's not maybe personal, but something which you find bothersome. So it's not against you. I don't know what it is. You know, you saw someone, uh, you know, picking their nose in public. I'm being ridiculous. You know, somebody doing something which really disturbs you, the way they behave. You know, it's ruining the dignity of, of, of the situation that you find yourself in. And the, the one I get very often in shul is uh, somebody comes up to me and says, you know, I saw that fellow talking in shul. So, so why don't you go up to him and tell him to stop talking? What are you telling me for? If it really bothers you, go to the person and tell them to stop talking. So that's really what Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shor is talking about. He hasn't done anything to him personally, right? He's not, you know, it disturbs his davening or disturbs the dignity of the shul, uh, you know, the, the decorum of the shul. But it's, it's not personal against him, that's what I mean. So it's, it's slightly different than what the Rashbam is saying. sisna enu don't hate him in your heart. Don't think of that person negatively. But you should inform them and instruct them, rebuke them. Why have you done this to me? Okay, so why have you behaved this way towards me? Whatever it is. That, that sounds personal. Perhaps he didn't feel quite, um, he didn't feel that he'd done anything wrong. Or he doesn't understand it the way you understand. Did you know perspective is huge? Context is huge. People always make mistakes when it comes to context and perspective. That's really where most social disputes have their root. Is that what one person thinks is perfectly okay, the other person thinks is very, very offensive. You know, I, I, I often say this, I've said it in many other contexts, is that most of the evil that's perpetrated in the world is perpetrated by good people. That means, how many, often do you meet a person who tells you, I think I'm really bad? By the way, if anybody ever tells you that, they need to go through therapy. Most people think of themselves as good. In other words, they don't conduct themselves in such a way that they want to be offensive towards other people. If they do, they're not quite right. So perhaps the person who's doing something wrong feels, uh, you know, or the person who feels wronged 
feels that that person has done them harm, and the other person thinks that would never know, right? And when they find out, they would say, oh my gosh, why didn't you tell me? If you would have told me, of course I wouldn't have done that thing. So maybe it was a mistake and you thought it was done on purpose. Or there's maybe no reason, right? It's, it's not, you're, you're thinking of it in terms of something bad. And actually there was no um, context whatsoever. It's simply random. And it's only through that you're going to know that they've done something um, uh, with a different background than the way it, it, uh, it, you know, that you thought of it. So the idea here is that this posuk all hangs together. Either don't hate and therefore, you know, don't hate a person for something they did to you or don't hate someone for something they did generally, or maybe it's personal to you and the context is not clear. But either way, it's only through a personal intervention that you're going to resolve the situation. So the hoicheach tochiach in both of, of those contexts has nothing necessarily to do with a general thing that's happened which is wrong. It's not people who are, um, you know, shouting Shabbos in Yerushalayim at every car that drives past, which, as you're going to see, doesn't seem to make any sense according to the halacha. So if you are in Jerusalem and you see a car driving, you have no obligation to shout and perhaps it's even forbidden. You shouldn't tell that person that they're driving on Shabbos and that it's wrong. You're not the right person to do it. Hopefully we can, we can work on society at large to reduce the number of people who drive on Shabbat, but that's not your personal obligation or duty, your duty. And if you're getting angry about it, you've got the wrong end of the stick. Let's look at the Ralbag. So the Ralbag, um, Gersonides, is a very original thinker. We don't often use him in the Shir. He looks at it completely differently. So he wants to understand why it is that anyone would need to rebuke someone else. What is the context of me? You know, I, I was born, I've got certain duties and obligations. As a Jew, I have to keep 613 mitzvahs, whatever Chazal told me I have to observe. I have to, you know, I've got the 13 um, items of faith which are enumerated by the Rambam. Whatever it is, the context of my life, I have to do. What gives me the right or the duty? What makes me think that I have the duty to ever tell someone else how they should behave. It's not my business. That's their relationship with God. It's, it's parallel to my relationship. It's got nothing to do with me if they're doing something wrong. So, and we're not talking about in terms of a teacher and his student or a parent and their child. There you have duty of care. But my duty of care doesn't extend to every, uh, every other person who I see in the world. My duty of care extends to myself and perhaps my immediate family. Somewhat. Even if he did them no harm. It's nothing, not personal at all. He hates that person in his heart. He never did the other person harm. You're not allowed to hate gratuitously. You're not allowed to feel hatred in your heart. And I'll explain to you what the purpose is, what, what underpins this. Do you know what's going to happen if you hate someone? Then they're going to be in need and they're going to be your enemy. And you're going to say, well, I'm not helping that person. I hate him. He's my enemy. And that person is going to suffer as a result of hatred. The ripple effect of hatred is it undermines um, societal responsibility. You have a community or friendship or a, just a general responsibility to the people among whom you live. And if you harbor hatred in your heart for someone, you're not going to help them. You're going to think, well, they're not part of my chevra. They're not my responsibility. That's why the previous posse, which we didn't quote here, says, Don't stand by uh, on, uh, the, on the blood of your friend, of your neighbor. In other words, this immediately follows. Don't be somebody who can watch someone else suffer. How would that ever happen? 
if you are a soine bilvavecha, if you're somebody who's a hater in your heart. So he says one isn't contingent on the other. He's totally different than what the Rashbam and Rabbi Yosef Bechor said. He says if you hate someone and you see them doing something wrong, because of your hatred, you're not going to even feel the need to correct them. You're going to be happy if they do something wrong. They should only trip themselves up and fall. That's what's going to be in your mind. Uh, and that's wrong. You're going to prevent yourself from um, being moichiach them, when they do things which are inappropriate. And that's why the latter part of the posuk is attached to loisisna esachicha bilbavecha. Right, Saloma. What does it mean to say? So it's not just against you. Does something against you or God? Make sure to tell them. If you hate someone, you're very happy if they do something wrong. Not personally against you. But you're happy if they do something wrong. By the way, even if they do something against you, if they're your enemy, it will just, in a sense, it will just compound your feelings of hatred towards them. And you'll even work more strongly against them. So the Posit tells us we have a duty in society of correct someone if they're, if they're heading in the wrong direction. And in order to avoid not doing that, you mustn't hate someone. You always have to find good in other people so that you're not hating them, so that when they do something wrong, you can be in that situation to, uh, to, re, uh, to guide them back in the right direction. So when it comes to something personal between the two of you, and you don't hate them, and you are mechiach them, you do rebuke them somehow, or you tell them that they've done something wrong, perhaps that's going to be corrected. Or perhaps that person will tell you, you're mistaken. I didn't mean that against you. And I'm sorry if you felt that way, but somehow you will resolve the situation. But if, you, if, if somebody's your enemy, you'll automatically assume, assume the worst, and you're never going to work towards correcting it. Or if you do something, if that person does something against God, if, you, if you're friendly with that person, you can have an influence on them, perhaps you'll be able to guide them back in the right direction in terms of whatever it is that they've done wrong against God. And that it has to be that as a result of your rebuke, something positive is going to happen, that the resolution is going to occur. How will, how will you effect a change in that individual? The only way you can effect a change is if you have a personal conversation with them. How would you be able to have a personal conversation with somebody if you hate them? It's not possible. So the is crucial in order to keep society on the straight and narrow. And the only way that can happen is if you maintain and sustain friendships within, within the community or the group that you live. But if you end up having animosity towards people, how are you ever going to be able to, um, to maintain a positive atmosphere or positive direction for the society in which you live? By being his friend, or her friend, and telling them that they've done something wrong, you'll be able to correct what they've done. If you are aggressive towards them, you're, you are accusatory. You, you, you're acting like a, you know, a, trying to destroy their reputation. In that way, you rebuke them by embarrassing them. And you, and you do things which... which um, paint them in a bad light in front of other people. You've got absolutely no advantage of that. In fact, you are going to be the sinner. So the whole point of is only, is only executed, it's only carried out 
if you are a friend of the person. But if you're an enemy, it's automatic that it will result in you sinning because the way that you're going to conduct yourself is going to be negative. Right? The person who, um, is hate, who hates the other guy is going to be the sinner in front, uh, in front of God uh, by doing it in the way that he does it, by embarrassing the other person in front of others. Which is why the Posuk talks about not sinning in terms of being a This is a beautiful piece. I found it online. Rabbi Yehuda Amital, number six on your source sheet, the top of page three. Rabbi Yehuda Amital was um, one of the founders of the Gush Yeshiva, passed away a few years ago, maybe seven, eight years ago. Um, and he was a remarkable individual, very, very warm. And he, 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 he was a Holocaust survivor, and he was incredibly influential to generations of young men studying Torah from the religious Zionist community. And he has a whole essay on this topic. I've, I've taken excerpts from it. He starts off with an, a Gemara in Avodah Zorah. Says as follows that there is, um, there is a halacha that if somebody is a heretic, you are malin. It's usually an expression we use with a mikveh, but in this situation, it's interesting. It's used with a heretic. What does it mean, malin? Somebody is a heretic, and you come across them, you see that they are in a pit and they can't get out. Or you see that they're down a mine shaft and there's a ladder there which will help them out. Do you have to help a heretic out of a mine shaft or not? Says the Gomorrah, you don't have to help a heretic. You have no duty towards a heretic. That means even though as a result of your inaction, that person is going to die, that's not your responsibility. You don't become a murderer. That's what the Gomorrah says in Avodah Zorah. He's quite troubled by this. Ulam hachazin ishchosif. So he says, uh, uh, he doesn't like this at all because the implication here is that you're not a mochiach to the heretic. And in fact, you, uh, you are, you know, passively, perhaps, causing that person to die. So he quotes a very famous chazanish. The chazanish is in the chelik on Yeridea, um, the second chelik on Yeridea, number... Uh, number 16, if you want to look it up in there. Venire, says the Chaznish. The Chaznish, do you know who the Chaznish was? I just wanted to give you a brief description of the Chaznish. The Chaznish was one of these hidden scholars. He was well known in the rabbinic scholarly fraternity in Lithuania, but beyond that fraternity, nobody knew him. He never had a public position. Even though he was married, sadly, he never had children. Um, and at some point, I think he was around 50 years old, he decided he wanted to move to Eretz Yisrael with his wife. And he, he um, Reb Chaim Ozergajinsky sent a letter to Rav Cook, arranged for his visa, and he arrived in Eretz Yisrael quietly, nobody knew who he was, and he lived in Bnei Barak. And at some point, you know, the Second World War erupted, and he had become the halachic, authority for Pai, Po'alei Agudat Yisrael. That means those among the very Haredi community who had actually started settlements in Israel. So they were, they were more inclined towards cooperation with the Zionists, even though they were ultra-Orthodox. He'd become their halachic authority. And there was a situation. There was a large group of students who were caught in Kobe in Japan and they wanted to know how they should keep Shabbos. What's the international date line? How does the halacha relate to the international date line? And somehow, you know, one, either one of the rabbis in Israel or one of the rabbis in Japan wrote to him in Palestine, and he um, issued a pamphlet as a result of which he was propelled into fame because this was one of the most talked about halachic topics um, in, I think, 1940 or 41. And he lived for another 12 years. I think he died in 1953. And over the next few years, he became the recognized authority for all of the ultra-Orthodox community and even beyond. He was incredibly influential.
So he went from complete obscurity to being one of the most famous rabbis in the world, only much later in life. In any event, his opinions are always very strict and very stark. He's known for being, uh, you know, extremely stringent in terms of the of his halachic approach. Every his shurim are always bigger, you know, the sizes, every every aspect, you know, the, um, anything that could potentially be uh, um, considered um, somehow uh, infringing upon rabbinic Jewish law, he was extremely stringent. Very machmir, that's the Hebrew word for it. Listen to what he says. So this is the chaznish. The nira, he says. When does this law apply in terms of making sure her heretics die by your inaction? Only when the, um, the presence of God is clear to everybody. It's a time when there were open miracles. And there were vo- a voice could come from heaven and people could hear it. In other words, there was a general recognition of God's existence. There was no agnosticism anywhere in the world. And the great rabbis of the generation operated clearly to everybody's opinion um, uh, by the direct involvement of God so that you could see that there's no doubt in anyone's mind that God exists. In that case, a heretic is somebody uh, who, who is not worthy of Hatzalah, of being saved. It's incredibly, uh, it's such an affront to God in that um, situation for heretics to exist. How can they behave in such a wanton fashion if the existence of God is so clear that everybody can see it? In that situation, ridding the world of evil sinners and heretics, is that's the norm. In that situation, you have no obligation to save a heretic. Because everybody will realize that if heretics exist, that this um, equilibrium of God belief is going to be undermined. And will result in terrible consequences for the world because God will be so disappointed that the world has descended. Avol, I've actually bolded this. Avol bizman hahelem shenichrusa haemuna mindalasa om. In a time when there is a lack of knowledge, where God is hidden, where we don't know, where generally speaking people have no direct involvement or knowledge of God. It's not immediately apparent that God exists. We need to search for God. In a time where God needs to be found, and is not um, automatically assumed. The resolving the situation is not because you're going to get rid of heretics. You know what's going to happen? It's going to make it much worse. If you are a religious Jew and you reject heretics, you're going to make people hate religious Jews even more. If you're a God believer who behaves that way towards heretics, you're not going to increase belief, you're going to decrease belief. It's going to to be seen by heretics and by their supporters as further proof of how disgusting God believers are. So maybe it applied in a perfect world and Gomorrah and Sanhedrin is talking about a perfect world. However, and this is the Chaznish speaking, nowadays, and he lives at a time of the state of Israel, where m- most people don't naturally accept God's might or God's existence, or if they do accept it only on their own very subjective terms, they certainly don't accept the, um, the, uh, the Judaism of the Shulchan Aruch, the whole purpose of our existence is to improve the world. The purpose of our existence is not to destroy the world. And uh, this halacha is not practiced when 
the, by doing anything, it's going to make things worse. Our duty, our obligation with heretics, with people who deny God, is to demonstrate love towards them in every possible aspect of our relationship and our interactions with them. Because it's only through that that we can increase God's belief. Don't behave negatively towards those who don't believe in the way that you do. Our duty, our duty is to make sure that we demonstrate love as God believers. We are ambassadors of God's faith. And he continues as follows. This is Rabbi Amitah. He quotes a Zohar in Parshas Noach. That Zohar came out of the Tevar and he complained to God, how could you have destroyed the world in this way? And God responded to him, you're, an, you're a fool. You call yourself a shepherd. You're a fool. Now you remember? Now you're busy with this? You had 120 years before the Mabal where you could have demanded mercy from me to, to not destroy the world. So now the world has been destroyed. You're busy with this. Why didn't, asks Rabbi Amital, why didn't Noach ask God for mercy not to destroy the world? So the Zohar explains as follows, because Noah was concerned that he would come under the influence of those evildoers and therefore he would also be destroyed. He would fall under their influence. His own level of closeness to God would be diminished and as a result of which he would be caught up in the flood. Um, Says Rabbi Amita, how wrong Noach was according to the way the Zohar presents it. Noach was concerned for his own level of closeness to God, but in fact, what God is telling him, our duty is to go to those people, even if it means that our own levels of observance or our own levels of Judaism, our own levels of adherence to God or closeness to God might somehow be reduced. Our duty is to resolve problems. Our duty is to make sure that we make ourselves available to those people. So we have to understand them. And Noach, the Noach chashash l'habia havona l'chatoi hador. And he was, he was extremely concerned and he didn't want to fraternize with them. And that is the problem today. There's so many within the Orthodox community whose greatest concern is their own level. They're not worried about the rest of the world. It's not our problem. And if we mix with them, if we fraternize with them, we're going to suffer. We're not going to behave appropriately. Says Rabbi Amita, what are you talking about? You've got the wrong attitude completely. Look what the Chazan Ish says. We need to show them love. Look what the Zohar says. That Noach made a mistake by not making more efforts to bring people back under, um, under the fold. Because um, the, the point is, that we will, we could change the paradigm by introducing ourselves as friends, as helpers, as guides to those within the Jewish world who have rejected Judaism. Habasis shall gishazuhu amiti, achlamrot zot, chayavim lenasot lavin et ayadut achilonit ledaberima. So he said, even though we might suffer. And, and our concerns are, not, are genuine, as it says it here. It is right. means that we might be influenced in such a way that we might become like them. Right? All these arguments within the Jewish world about keeping ourselves separate are null and void. Even though they're good arguments. That is, is, He's not denying it. He says, Nevertheless, despite that, you've got a good taina. Nevertheless, we have an obligation, a duty of care that means that it overrides any concerns. Because we won't be judged on the basis um, of 
what we could have been in terms of had we lived, you know, in the time of the Beis HaMikdosh, we're judged in terms of the community in which we lived. We're not perfect and we won't be perfect. And the truth is, if we mix with those people who are less than perfect, we will somehow be influenced by them. That's true, but that's how we're going to be judged. But we, we still have the duty towards them and we can't use the excuse that our own level will be diminished as a result um, to avoid having to do what we need to do. Adam shelo shomer Torah mitzvot mishum haderech bochonech and certainly it applies to someone who doesn't keep Torah mitzvahs because that's the way he was educated. Why would he be judged according to the strictest opinions of the Shulchan Aruch and Halacha? Of course he's not going to be judged that way. He doesn't know any better. Let's be clear about ourselves. Now I always say this. No, we're very lucky to be religious Jews. Why are we religious Jews? Somehow, either we were born into a family of religious Jews or we came under the influence of religious Jews. Because had it been left to, up, up to us, by default, we wouldn't be religious. It wouldn't happen, right? It just, just would never happen. So on that basis, why are we behaving arrogantly towards somebody who's less religious than us? What gives us the right to behave that way towards them? We must maintain a relationship with them and not uh, behave towards them in a negative fashion. And in the words, he's paraphrasing the Chazan Ish. Our duty is not to maintain a little ghetto and make sure that nothing interferes with it. Our duty is to reach out to those who have less observance than us. Don't ever believe that we, are, that we have a duty to um, be among ourselves or to be critical of others. I just want to um, read two things, one from the Likuti Moran and one from Isilati Sharim, two very different worlds, the Hasidic world and the Musa world. On this problem with rebuke nowadays, Although rebuke is extremely important, says Rav Nachman of Breslov, and it is incumbent upon every Jew to reprove his fellow Jew when he sees him acting incorrectly, because it says, Nevertheless, not everyone is fit to offer moral guidance. As Rabbi Akiva said, I doubt if there's anyone in this generation who is capable of giving reproof. And if Rabbi Akiva said it in his era, says Rav Nachman, how much more so in our current era? Don't think that you can be God's policeman. And Misilati Sharim adds this. For instance, the Torah instructs us, Very often a person attempts to rebuke sinners at a place or time when his words will not be heeded. And this causes them to go further in their wickedness, to desecrate God's name and to add further transgression to their sin. In such cases, true righteousness is to keep silent. So we have here a vast range of approaches in terms of understanding this pasuk, in terms of understanding what our duties are, what our obligations are in terms of and certainly you must never hate anyone in your heart. You must find the balance between making sure they're doing the right thing and making sure there's no hatred in your heart and at the same time not acting as God's policeman by being pompous or arrogant about your own faith or your own way of doing things so that you make someone else feel bad. We'll leave it here for today.